Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property, presented by the Indiana University Maurer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Sydney Schnur, and I'm a 2L at Maurer with a PhD in pathobiology, and I'm very interested in biotech and pharmaceutical IP law. I have Karen and Jacob with me. Would you like to introduce yourselves? My name is Karen Kukla. I am a 2L at Maurer with a background in biomedical engineering, and I am interested in biotech IP law. And then my name is Jacob Boach. I'm also a 2L here at Maurer. My background is in civil engineering, and I'm more interested in the mechanical side of patent law. On this episode, we are pleased to be joined by Professor Cripps. Professor Cripps teaches Introduction to Biotech Biotechnological Innovation and, and Law and Biomedical Advance here at Maurer. I am currently taking both courses. Introduction to Biotech Innovation is a seminar course where students choose a cutting-edge legal biotech topic and write to write a paper on and lead a discussion on. For example, my paper focuses on how to determine subject matter eligibility through the innovative concept test for composition of matter claims, and during the discussion, the class had a rich discussion on when technologies like CRISPR-Cas and bacteriophages could be considered subject matter eligible for composition of matter claims. Law and Biomedical Advance teaches the ways in which law is affected by advancements in biomedicine with a focus on the intersection between biotechnology and information technology. Both courses are amazing, and I definitely recommend them to any Maurer students who want to experience this ever-growing area of law. For our listeners, would you like to give a brief overview of your background, Professor Cripps? Um, yes, sure, Sydney. Thank you. I uh, taught for one year at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, which was my alma mater in my hometown. And after that one year teaching law there, I spent the next 20 years of my career in the Faculty of Law at the University of Cambridge in England, and then 17 years as a professor visiting teaching courses at the Cornell Law School, some of that concurrently with the Cambridge years. And I, I'm delighted to be here with you all at Mara presently. Over the years, I've also sat on governmental committees, but all the while trying to keep my uh, hand in with the play of the practical issues in the private sector. Professor Cripps, what areas of law are involved in biotech today? Well, I, I think, Karen, one of the reasons I love teaching uh, this area is that I feel the issues, the biotech law issues, cut across really every subject in the legal curriculum, even through to trusts and estates at one level. But more particularly, one thinks of the intellectual property issues, patents. Dolly the sheep was also trademarked. Dolly the cloned sheep was trademarked as well as patented. And there are even some design rights. Of course, plant variety rights are also an issue when you think about biotech law. But that's just intellectual property. So I would call that just the first issue or one of the issues. But here we're also dealing with related tort claims. For example, conversion of your genetic information or of the samples which contain the chemicals that code for your genetic information. So there we have torts. We have property. You can't have 
conversion, the tort of conversion without having property in the sample or specimen or biotech product over which there is legal contention. We have contract who controls the samples, who gives consent or not. Of course, there are huge privacy issues here because what we see in the 21st century is a collision, or if you prefer, coincidence of biotech issues with the digital age, where all this genetic information that increasingly is sequenced, for instance, 20% of us in America, in North America, have had our genome sequenced by companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Now, that's already 20% and rising rapidly, and that doesn't count all the medical sequencing that's going on through doctors' offices. So huge privacy issues that leads to HIPAA, you know, consent, who, who do you allow to have access to your samples? Then there's a whole host of common law privacy issues arising from cases like Safer and Pack and Malloy and Meyer. Those last two cases concern the issue of must you disclose, if you're a medical professional, information about a patient to family members who may be affected by a highly hereditary cancer, for example. And that's becoming a bigger and bigger issue, of course, with all the storage of of DNA. Those cases, especially Malloy and Maya, bleed into the wrongful birth cases where a relative may later claim that they shouldn't even, you know, that there should be recovery for the fact that they were born with a serious illness. And so, you know, many other issues too. Healthcare is a major one. We have tests now like Oncotype DX, which basically runs algorithms from a blood sample to determine your likelihood of cancer recurrence. Oncotype, you know, testing your genes for cancer recurrence. Now, this has huge implications for the entire healthcare system and the Affordable Care Act on the legal end, because chemotherapy, for example, is one of the biggest costs in the healthcare system. And if we can run algorithms like Oncotype DX, we can decide that particular patients shouldn't get chemo or in other cases should. So those are just some of the issues, of course, constitutional law issues. If you clone human beings as we are doing, well, um, you know, I can say more about that later if you'd like me to. Um, that runs us straight into the 13th and 14th Amendments and also into Section 33A of the America Invents Act, which says you can't patent a clone human organism. Organism remains to be defined legally. I'll just mention a couple more legal issues, Karen, as you've asked. There's the whole issue of how the genetic information is used, and that brings us to what's commonly known as GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, and also ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and that brings us to ERISA, 
which deals with uh, discrimination in your employment. So you've got discrimination in healthcare and health insurance. I could go on and so on and so forth, but that's probably enough. So clearly the breadth and depth of biotech law is very, very wide and very interesting. But since we're kind of interested in patent law, we're curious about how patent law specifically is different for biotech innovations. What sort of hardships do inventors have in this space when they're applying for and enforcing their intellectual property? It's an excellent question, Jacob. It's very different for biotech inventors from mechanical inventors, inventors of a a new motor, which I know is more in your particular expertise and, and scientific background. For example, genetic engineers and biotechnologists have to contend with the fact that their patent product applications for patents may be self-replicating, may be actually reproducing. And both the European Directive on Patenting Biotech Organisms and various cases here in the US Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit have already had to contend with the issue in the first instance in the European Directive of progeny of genetically modified organisms, biotech, and in the case of um, the Federal Circuit, have had to deal with the clones of clones. So when a creature is cloned and then a clone is produced of the clone, does the patent attach or the patent claim to the clone of the clone or the separate entity, the progeny of the clone? Because, of course, the clone of the clone is different from the progeny of the clone. So you've got that issue. And then your question raises uh, interesting issues of enforcement. And we saw the grave difficulties that arose after the decision of the Supreme Court in the Myriad Genetics case. There, the court decided by a margin of nine to zero uh, that Myriad couldn't patent breast cancer gene mutations just because they had isolated those BRCA1 and BRCA2 breast cancer mutations. But in a part of the judgment, Justice Thomas held that the cDNA, also known as the complementary DNA, he felt that could be patented. Now, as soon as that case was decided, the person holding the patent on those breast cancer mutations tried to enforce just that narrow part of the judgment, the only part of the judgment which seemed to go in favor of the corporation, the part of the judgment relating to the complementary cDNA. But in several first instance courts, immediately following on from Myriad, injunctive relief for patent infringement was refused consistently here in the States. That followed on from several international decisions, which didn't agree with the cDNA exception that Justice Thomas had tried to carve out in the married case. But as to your question, there was a particular difficulty with enforcement because none of the first instance judges 
asked for an injunction to enforce the patent, believed that cDNA was a patentable novel invention with an inventive step and all the rest of it. It didn't qualify under those other headings. And so they couldn't get uh, get an injunction in an infringement action. And that's partly because these things are viewed as products of nature. Now, you're not going to get a motor or an electrical device viewed as a product of nature. So those are just some of the difficulties that inventors have in the biotech space. Wow, Professor Cripps, I'm already learning so much. So thank you. You kind of touched upon it earlier, but how is consumer privacy affected by companies selling DNA kits and the like? Thank you, Karen. An excellent question. I'll give you an example. When 23andMe, which is one of the major players in the we'll test your DNA field, when they first formed their business model and came into being, their primary business model was not as a supplier earning money from the sale of DNA testing. Their primary business model was the sale of the DNA information, which was provided by the customers buying this service. So that gives you some insight into the huge privacy implications here. Now, good luck with the, you know, 40 pages as it might be in any given corporate case of privacy or consent forms that you'll be having to wade through online as to the interpretation of those disclosure and non-disclosure and privacy clauses that are very extensive and, you know, how many people will be reading them in detail or indeed understanding them. So, yes, very big privacy implications for those sorts of companies. Now, there's another kind of company which alarmingly, if you go to Amazon, you can buy a DIY do-it-yourself test your own DNA at home, you know, maybe in the garage. And all I can say on that one, Karen, is that our best hope is that they don't currently work. That would have serious, if it did work, you know, CRISPR CRISPR self-modification perhaps, uh, test uh, or or CRISPR self-modification test, we hope that won't work. (laughs) Of course, FDA and FTC issues, which do come in, you know, you might have to fall back on the FDA or the FTC, even with some of the privacy issues. Yes, thank you very much. Would you explain what three parent babies are for our listeners? Yes, very many thanks for asking, Cindy, because this one really is interesting. And I know from my um, time base in the United Kingdom that the UK has expressly permitted, whereas other countries have just implicitly permitted, three parent babies for the purposes of therapeutic use. Now, I'll explain briefly what a three parent baby is, although to do so, I really need to say a word or two about somatic cell nuclear transfer. Now, Somatic cell nuclear transfer is also part of the process by which Dolly the sheep was cloned. It's a remarkable method of cloning because it doesn't require 
that the creature being cloned is, for example, of fertile reproductive age or is even females by this extraordinary somatic cell nuclear transfer method. Let me explain what that is. To perform that procedure, we take a cell, and in the case of a three-parent baby, we would take an egg cell, and we would remove the nucleus from that egg cell because the nucleus is the part of the cell that contains most of your governing inheritable DNA. We would then take another egg cell, possibly from a younger creature, or indeed human being in this case of three parent babies, and we would remove the nucleus from that egg cell. We would then move the nucleus from the first cell up into the outer cell wall of the second cell. Now, the mitochondrial DNA exists outside the nucleus, and there are many illnesses which are caused by defective mitochondrial DNA. So in the United Kingdom and in many other countries, we perform this procedure in order to move that nucleus from the first egg cell away from the diseased mitochondrial DNA in the egg cell, which are outside the nucleus. Then having taken the nucleus out of the second egg cell, we leave in the my healthy mitochondrial DNA of that second egg cell, move the nucleus up into it. Then the, So that involves DNA from two individuals. There we have two parents already. We have the DNA of the first cell in the nucleus moved up into a second cell, which contains mitochondrial DNA from a second person. The third parent is going to be sperm, a sperm donor. So we there have the DNA of three parents. Does that make any sense, Karen? We're doing it at the moment therapeutically to try to leave behind that diseased mitochondrial DNA. And so with that, you know, obviously from a legal standpoint, it can be pretty complex to sort out how important is it in contract law to uh, aid in this sort of technology? Well, um, thanks, Jake. Contract law tends to come up mainly in terms of consent. You know, are these three parties consenting and to what are they consenting? We, in certain settings, we have what's called here in the US, the common rule, although the common rule was recently diluted, weakened, so that it's easier for an institution or a hospital or whatever it might be, a clinic, to say that it got consent. It used to be a bit more stringent in terms of how the consent was given and how detailed it was and what it covered, you know, that it mustn't be overboard. So that's where contract comes in mainly. Also, sometimes we see it in my field in terms of technology transfer agreements. Uh, for instance, there was a case called the Catalona case where there were two contracts involved. 
a doctor had been given samples by his patients. He then moved to another university and he asked his patients to sign a second transfer of property and samples. This is where we get to property as opposed to intellectual property. So there was a second contract involved, which the court basically invalidated, but I won't get in any further into that. Do you think that there will be more laws on technologies like three-parent babies in the future? And if so, what do you think these laws might look like? Thank you, Sydney. I'm very glad you asked that because I would like to see, you know, often as a lawyer, I'm asking for more regulation, more you know, paying attention to this risk and that risk. But in the very area that you've all raised about the three-parent babies, I would like to see the United States adopt a more liberal position in order to allow this therapeutically to, you know, help couples who or individuals who are dogged by these mitochondrial illnesses. And I can foresee other very beneficial applications down the line. At the moment, the United States, unlike many other countries, has an FDA ruling which has been interpreted, perhaps controversially, to ban this kind of work in the United States. So I'd like to see that regulation clarified and become more permissive towards therapeutic uses of the three-parent baby, the mitochondrial DNA techniques. Thank you. Would you explain the importance of being able to clearly differentiate technologies as a lawyer, like somatic cell nuclear transfer and artificial embryo twinning? And then with that, what biotech case do you find most interesting? And would you give a short description of the case? Thank you very much, Sydney. I, I appreciate and enjoy the way you've framed that question because there is a case which I think is extremely interesting for folk in this area, which actually necessitates an understanding which the judges in the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, did not seem to display. And the case I'm thinking of is the Roslyn case, which flowed internationally, but I'm talking about the US limb of the proceedings. Patents, of course, are merely territorial. But if you've obtained patent protection in more than one jurisdiction, you're going to have an international series of litigations. And that's what happened with the 53 patents obtained by the Roslyn Institute in Scotland, on Dolly the Sheep, we'll set aside the trademarks for some other time. These were litigated all around the world and before the US Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit on appeal, obviously. Now, in that case, it didn't seem to me that the court fully understood the really rather dramatic scientific difference between cloning a sheep or indeed a human being by what you referred to just now, Sydney, from your own PhD in biotech background and considerable experience in that field, what you referred to as embryo splitting or embryo twinning. 
that is just where, for example, in a human in vitro fertilization clinic, ever since the early 1990s, we have just sh literally shaken up embryos to cause them to split, which is, mirrors closely the process by which identical twins happen in nature. We just give it a little assist by shaking up an embryo until it, it splits into two and then continues this way, the two pieces dividing, uh, multiplying rather. That is embryo splitting, cloning by embryo splitting or embryo twinning. And as I say, we've been doing that around the world, including in the United States, with human beings since the early 1990s. Now, the other method of cloning, which we just spoke of a moment ago in relation to somatic cell nuclear transfer, which was the method used on Dolly the sheep, who just like us is a mammal, and which has also been used to clone our nearest cousins, or should I even say siblings, the orangutans, chimpanzees, and gorillas, who are great apes just as we are in, in the animal kingdom. These have all been cloned by somatic cell nuclear transfer. And in terms of your question, Sydney, you don't need a female of reproductive years for the somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning, whereas you certainly do need that for the embryo splitting or embryo twinning. So that is one major difference. Now, to bring it forward and show its importance in the Roslyn case, in the Roslyn case, a number of very interesting issues arose before a patent appeal court basically three main grounds for the argument. The first was that Dolly the cloned sheep, these patents weren't valid because Dolly was just a product of nature. Secondly, there was an argument, well, her mitochondrial DNA in all the ways we've just looked at was different from that of a conventional sheep. You know, there was a mixture of DNA from one sheep and mitochondrial DNA from another. Then there was an argument based on the biotechnology of epigenetics, that time and even the position of Dolly in the womb uh, in the surrogate mother sheep womb had led to epigenetic differences to which a patent could not attach. And furthermore, that the Roslin Institute, in the eyes of the appeal patent appeal court had not claimed the epigenetic differences, had not claimed in its claims, as opposed to its specification in the patent, had not claimed those differences, which in the court litigation it was saying made Dolly markedly different from other sheep. But why I think the court did not have a clear understanding of the somatic cell nuclear transfer technology is that the court kept stating, Dolly is identical to the other sheep, identical. They kept using that word. Now, as biotechnologists, we know that Dolly was not identical because of the mitochondrial DNA, because of the epigenetics, and even to a smaller extent because of the third argument, which was based on a time delay between 
cloned creatures. You know, the clone starts out at age one day after birth, whereas the creature from which it is cloned, in the case of Dolly, was six years old. But by repeatedly stating that Dolly the sheep was identical, the court seemed to base its conclusion that the patents were invalid on a mistaken or an incomplete understanding of the science. And with understanding the science and everything and looking at experts in the field like yourself or Sydney, how can law students and lawyers do a better job of making sure better laws are made around biotechnology in the future? Well, thank you, Jacob. I think one of the ways is to, for lawyers, law students, law professors and judges, to appreciate the interconnectedness of these issues. And I think you all have done a great job in that way with the questions you've asked. You know, you started by asking what legal subjects, you know, Karen was asking what legal subjects does this cover? What does it cross in the lawyer's lexicon of subjects? And uh, just about all of them, you know, maybe we're attacking as in the case of Moore and the Regents of California or the Greenberg case where the children had the genes for Canavan's disease or the Catalona case. We're using torts in those cases rather than intellectual property law. And I think if students, professors and judges understand more, you know, we may be dealing with conversion, we may be dealing with the crime of theft, because here, as I mentioned at the outset, we have to relate the law to the actual samples, which to some extent the plant variety uh, legislation does by having seed banks and things of that kind, although the patent system under the Budapest Convention also has microbiological depositories uh, in all the different countries that have patent systems. But to appreciate the interconnectedness of, of all these issues and also to think more about that coincidence of the digital age with storage of the information as well as the storage of the chemicals, the DNA itself, which code for that information. So I, I think that's something that we could all usefully think about in fresh, fresh ways as all of this evolves. And that's not meant to be a pun. And then what are some ways that law students and lawyers can get better at making these technologies more understandable to judges and jurors? That's a great question, too, and I'm reminded of the vast international patent litigation that was the Biogen case, Biogen versus Medeva. In that case, the judges, even you know the House of Lords in the United Kingdom and that limb of the proceedings, got a really good handle on the technology and consequently gave what I think was a very cogent patent ruling. And I say even in the United Kingdom, because those judges at the time in the House, what was then called the Judicial House of Lords, they did not have patent backgrounds at all whatsoever. And they also didn't have scientific biotech backgrounds. But if we move to the uh, they had very good expert witnesses and that kind of backup. But if we move to the Australian limb of the same litigation in the Biogen patent case, we see there 
that both sides, plaintiff and defendant, or appellant and respondent as the case evolved, they made video presentations, short ones, 20 minutes each. Each side got to make its own presentation by scientists, explaining the technology to both the lawyers and the judges. And again, I think the Australian judges, in with the benefit of those excellent videos in that litigation, were able to understand the technologies, complex technologies involved, and give really good decisions without themselves having a biotech background. And uh, I, I think that's one of the things we can think about in that arena. I mean, we're also going to come up at the moment, it's pending. It was last in court in November of 2022. But the case of Miss Henrietta Lacks, yeah. whose famous healer cells are still in use today, although she died decades ago. Questions arising there of restitutionary remedies, first against Johns Hopkins, which was the first claimant of intellectual property rights in Miss Lax's extraordinary HeLa, as they've now come to be called after her, cells. And then subsequently the Thermo Fisher Scientific Corporation, which bought the rights uh, from Johns Hopkins. So that should be coming up this year in the courts. And again, these will be very interesting litigations. And we're going to see many more of these along with those other cases I mentioned in the privacy context, where people are saying that they don't approve of the use which was made of their DNA information, or even of the property and their DNA samples. Thank you very much for joining us on this interview and participating with us. We really, I learned a lot. I always feel like I learn a lot when I go to class and when you speak. So thank you for doing this with us. And I think those are all the questions we have for you today. And our listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at C-I-P-R Mauer, I-P-T-H, or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again for our next episode of Fire of Genius.